introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Where are we listening? How are we listening? This is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome back to episode 23. We're going to talk about the China influence and the history of Kung Fu in Hollywood. This episode is going to be done in two parts. It's going to be the first part is going to be Kung Fu in Hollywood. How China's um, Kung Fu, China's influence artistically affected the movies in Hollywood. And then the second half is going to be how China's got a new influence on Hollywood. And that is the control, the scriptwriter, the censorship. What's going on in China as far as how Hollywood is kowtowing a little bit to China in so many regards and how much society in general is kowtowing to China and their censorship and what it means for us, what it means for Hollywood, what it means for Bond, what it means for movies going forward, what it means to just kind of in society going forward. So really excited to do this stuff. It's going to be a really interesting topic. Thank you again for Stanley to kind of set me down this rabbit hole. And uh, it's been a fun topic to research. So yeah, I hope you guys will enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get right into it. First part, Kung Fu. Hi-ya! Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Oh yeah, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good episode, guys. Atomically, Socrates, philosophies, and hypotheses Can't define how I be dropping these mockeries Lyrically perform armed robbery Flee with the lottery Possibly they spotted me Battle scarred showgun The evolution of the action film genre has had a multitude of changes and influences as the world has fallen in love with films. Now, in early Hollywood films, the fighting would be considered like swashbuckling adventures, you know? Exaggerating movements, the punches and kicks were... They'd fall over a chair, and every punch, they'd jump back six feet. Um, there was unrealistic reactions to the punches, the kicks, the fights. Everything was very unrealistic, very opera-style. The action was more ballet than realistic, relying on camera, edits, and sets to make the action work. While Hollywood was relying on movies like, you know, The Mask of Zorro... Three Musketeers in the 1920s, Asia was starting their own film genre, which is Wuxia. These films were part of Shanghai film industry that had emerged in the 1920s. These films centered around classical Chinese stories. They focused on heroism, the lore of the beast, spirits, and supernatural. Like they could jump 10 feet tall. Like if you were to watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's very much how they would want to be. Like you could jump 17 feet in the air. As the 1920s came to a close, and the tide in the Chinese government changed, they banned martial arts films. As the rise of Mao Zedong, as the rise of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, once they came about, they started censoring these films. The Chinese government believed that martial arts promoted feudalism and superstition, and the bans remained there until 1980. Still to this day, Chinese cinema remains highly censored. And that's something we're, that's going to be the second half, where we're really going to talk into the censorship in China. As a result, Chinese-style cinema moved to the British colony of Hong Kong. Hong Kong did not fall under the same kind of censorship that the Chinese government was emplacing on its own Shanghai film industry. And as such, film in the region flourished. The Wajia films of the time were based on fantastical displays rooted mainly in supernatural abilities. These Wajia were Mandarin films, but soon the Cantonese film industry would emerge and give birth to a new film genre. Kung Fu! I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to have to say it like that. I can't say, you can't like very pragmatically go, Kung Fu, you have to, Kung Fu, Kung Fu, oh, Kung Fu, I'm sorry, I had to say it that way. It's not being derogatory, it's just fun for me. Now, Kung Fu was much more realistic in its approach to film combat. The violence is based on hand-to-hand combat rather than swords or trampoline work type artistry. Before Bruce Lee became a worldwide sensation, Kwang Paking was the first true action movie star in the world. The true story of Wong Fei Hong, released in 1949, 
was the first time Kwong would pay Fang Hong, a role he would reprise 80 times. I'm pretty sure that Vin Diesel is trying to uh, top that number with Dominic Toretti. He's really, he's really riding that cash cow. I'm good for him, though. I remember when the first and first two came out, he's like, I'm a serious actor. I'm, I'm not going to do a sequel. I'm better than that. And then he puts out a couple of clunkers, and all of a sudden he's playing Dominic Toretti like 25 times. Funny how that happens. Anyways, Hing was a true martial artist, though. And the torch that would be started with Hing would be passed on to Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, and Michelle Yeoh. Or Yoey. Or Yoa. I'm not still. I'm really bad with Asian enunciation, so I apologize. I'm doing the best I can. As the genre of kung fu was largely still a Southeast Asia phenomenon, that was about to change in the late 1960s and into the 1970s. Enter the dragon. Bruce Lee was born in San Francisco before moving to Hong Kong. Lee's father was a traveling Chinese opera star, and on his trip to San Francisco, Lee was born. Once in Hong Kong, he became a child film star. He starred in over 20 films and studied under renowned Wing Chun style of Kung Fu. Bruce Lee would marry Linda Emery and move to Los Angeles, where he got his break in a TV show, The Green Hornet. Lee played Kato, the role that made him a household name. As Lee's notoriety grew, Hollywood took notice. Lee would train several of Hollywood's elite. Even the likes of Steve McQueen sought out training of Lee. After a couple years of Hollywood, he returned to Hong Kong, where he would make the most iconic Kung Fu films of all time. The Big Boss, followed by The Way of the Dragon, which also starred a legendary, legendary karate champion called Chuck Norris. Do you know that Chuck Norris counted to infinity twice? Do you know that Chuck Norris can do a wheelie on a unicycle? Do you know that once a, Chuck, a cobra bit Chuck Norris's leg, after five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died? Do you know that when Superman goes to bed, he wears Chuck Norris pajamas? Do you know that Chuck Norris can slam revolving doors? Do you know that Dark is afraid of Chuck Norris? Do you know that Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird? Do you know that Chuck Norris can play the violin with the piano? Do you know that Chuck Norris makes onions cry. Death had near Chuck Norris experience. Chuck Norris can strangle with a cordless phone. Chuck Norris never retreats. He attacks in the opposite direction. Chuck Norris can build a snowman out of rain. Chuck Norris once punched a man in the soul. Chuck Norris can drown a fish. Chuck Norris once had a heart attack and his heart lost. When Chuck Norris looks in the mirror, the mirror shatters. Between not even glass is dumb enough to get in between Chuck Norris and Chuck Norris. When Chuck Norris enters a room, he doesn't turn the lights on, he turns the dark off. Chuck Norris can tie his shoes with his feet. The quickest way to a man's heart is with Chuck Norris's fist. Chuck Norris is the only person that can punch a cyclops between the eyes. Chuck Norris used to beat up the shadow because it was falling too close. It now stands 15 feet behind him. There was never a hurricane named after Chuck because it would have destroyed everything. Outer space exists because it's afraid to be on the same planet with Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris does a push-up. He pushes down the earth. <laughs> and one last one. Chuck Norris doesn't get frostbite. Chuck Norris bites frost. Again, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know why you guys listen. Anyways, and then after the way the dragon was... Uh, then came Chuck, uh, Bruce Lee's most famous of all movies, Enter the Dragon, where, where Bruce Lee cemented himself in his yellow jumpsuit as a world star. Enter the Dragon would go on to make over $200 million. Tragically, Lee would die one month after the release from brain edema. From this wave of kung fu success, the James Bond franchise would go on to capitalize on the success. The Man with the Golden Gun was made completely deviating from Ian Fleming's novel. I mean, if you read the novel, it's not even close. 
other than the fact that the names are kind of the same. Good Night and Excaramanga, it's terrible. Even though I don't even, I don't really like the book, The Man with the Golden Gun, but I really like the ending of the book with the mold. For some reason, it's just very, it's a very macabre ending to the book, but it's actually, I don't know, I, I like it. But I actually, I talk about this with Thomas too. Something about Man with the Golden Gun, it, I shouldn't like it. I don't, I'm watching this and I'm like, I shouldn't like this. But I, I, do, I don't even put it in my bottom half. It's, I don't know. It's something about Man with a Golden Gun I like. There's something about it. But I know I shouldn't because it's, <laughs> it's just a weird movie. But going so far, so the Man with the Golden Gun is made. And uh, it really, just like James Bond does a lot of times with black exploitation, with all the other things, it basically piggybacks on the trends. So James Bond is in a kung fu tournament in, in a scene that makes... Yeah, it just makes no sense. It's all of a sudden Roger Moore wakes up and he's a karate, a kung fu master champion, and he gets out and then two chicks save him. It's the weirdest. It's the weirdest. Again, I don't know why. And then Sergeant J W Pepper, uh, Harris Thomas's grandfather's there talking. I don't get it. I just why would he go to Thailand? That man, that man hasn't been out of a swamp the entire sixty years of his life. But again, I, I don't. I shouldn't like it. I should not like that movie. I shouldn't be watching this, enjoying the movie, but I like it, so it is what it is. I like the movie. It's my, it's one of my guilty pleasure bonds. As the 1970s came to a close, the kung fu genre was dying out of Hollywood, but the influence remained. No longer were fight scenes in films clunky and slapstick. They had become gritty and more realistic. The style was heavily influenced by kung fu. Rather than sloppy punches, hand-to-hand -hand combat was choreographed, with movements and realism emphasized. It is a style that was further brought out in the 1980s. Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Steven Seagal all flourished as Hollywood morphed kung fu to Hollywood-style stor storytelling and action stars. And when the 90s started, the action continued. By the late 1990s, Jackie Chan brought his mixing of kung fu action with slapstick comedy to the mainstream. At the turn of the millennium, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was released, paying homage to the old-style Hong Kong film. Hero and House of Flying Daggers brought about another revival of kung fu in Hollywood and Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill would recreate the storytelling of the action of Kung Fu, even having the main star Uma Thurman donning Bruce Lee's iconic yellow jumpsuit. Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 is one big uh, Kung Fu film. That's <laughs> all it is. And Quentin Tarantino is a huge Bruce Lee film, film buff. Like I said, he had Uma Thurman wear the yellow jumpsuit, which again, I'm not complaining about. Uma in that jumpsuit, I can, I can, I can deal with that all day. But even in the way it's shot, the storyline, her lines, even the fights, it's its just one big giant kung fu movie. Now while Hollywood was paying homage to kung fu, Hong Kong in the 90s had its own revival for kung fu. Jet Li came out and he started his own version of the aforementioned Fei Hong in Once Upon a Time in China. Actresses like Michelle Yaoi, Bridget Li, and Anita Mui brought about the female action genre star. This culminated in James Bond taking notice, again, and casting... Michelle Yeoh in Tomorrow Never Dies. And setting guys like, you know, Matt Perkins from Bond Cigars, his loins aflame. While the genre has proven to have staving power, its influence in both action films and the world of James Bond is inescapable. As the movie industry has evolved, kung fu and action films have morphed to be the norm for every action film to have hand-to-hand -hand combat sequences. The influence of the artistry of China is overt. However, as the 2000s began, Hollywood creeped more and more into the China market, and a new type of influence was being created over Hollywood. 
an influence not as easily as recognized. So when we talk about, when we look at the Bourne identity, look at, you know, Quantum of Solace, all that stuff. When you look at these hand-to-hand combats, if it wasn't for the in, for, for the influence of Kung Fu, you would, the, our action films would not look the way they do. Almost every one of the, the, the heavy hand-to-hand combat, the high angles, lots of fighting, kicking, punching, reversing, parrying, all that stuff. That's all kung fu. Yeah, it would just be. It would. Our action films would look much different. It look, look much more the way that um, George Lazenby throws a punch. Look at how George Lazenby throws a punch in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's this long drawn giant wave punch, right? And it doesn't look. It just looks very old style western, right? And then you look at how it evolved as hand to hand combat goes when, especially in the Daniel Craig era, when it was really. Really kung fu influenced. Jason Bourne was definitely. You look at the Bourne, which the Bourne identity really shaped of how Daniel Craig era. There's a lot. There's a couple movies I think that shaped the Daniel Craig movie, the Bourne series and Batman Begins. Those are the two. Eventually, the Marvel series. Those three things really influenced how Craig era played about. But to help kind of talk about this and, and go into it, I'm going to have my, my friend Stanley come out. And this episode was his idea, and uh, it was a lot of fun to research and a lot of fun to go into the history of it. So we're going to talk about Hollywood, the influence of Kung Fu, the action movies of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. So without further ado, welcome to my good friend, Stanley. Uh, hi everyone, uh, my name is Stanley Tatum, I am a New Yorker born and raised, uh, loving father, husband, uh, got two little girls, and uh, I am a, by trade, I'm a UX designer, uh, we don't code websites with the people who are the psychology behind what button goes where, uh, and then prior to that, I worked in film and television, for over 15 years as a post-production supervisor and uh, as an editor. So, uh, you know, this is part of my wheelhouse and, uh, you know, I'm a Bond fan. So, you know, let's just dive into it. That's pretty awesome. What, what, what does you mean by the code? Like when, like the social media stuff or just out of curiosity? So, you know, for, for anything, for whether it's an app or whether it's a website, when it comes to you, when it comes to UX design, we're the people who ensure that, um, you know, buttons go where that, that when you have to input your information, when it comes to logging in or what we call onboarding, it's about making the, the, it's just about making the process as simple as possible. So that way, you know, you're constantly coming back because you know that the website or the, uh, the app that you're on is reliable. You know, if you're able to, if you're able to complete a task, whether you're like buying clothes or, or you know, seeing about getting tickets or, or or using your app to to go on the train or something like that. As long as, as long as that process is simple uh, and enjoyable, then it more than likely you will come back. Uh, I think we've got stats say that you know if you if people are not satisfied uh, with your with your site, then within thirty you know, within like thirty eight percent of them will just move on to something else. You know, they'll look for they'll look for a, another product to satisfy their needs in that regard. So, you know, it's it's you'll see it everywhere. Uh, you'll see mm-hmm. us everywhere in terms of, um, you know, whether it's banking apps, 
whether it's, I mean, even if you're using digital kiosks, if you're getting like bus tickets at the Greyhound station or, or getting, you know, uh, like, you know, movie tickets as well, you know, if you have, well, when we used to go to the movies, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so we're, you know, we're the science and, and psychology behind that. And it's not just, you know, us just sitting by a computer trying to, to design things. You do focus groups, you get people to test out the websites as well when you, when you've come up with new concepts. So there's a whole sort of psychology. There's a, there's a whole process behind this, a whole design process behind it. So I'm just a, a small part, a small part of that. that. That's really interesting. So what is like the, the main gap when you first, like how much time do you think you have? What do you guys go for when somebody clicks on a website? How much time do people usually have before they make a decision? This website is crap or this is good or is that kind of too broad of you a know question? What it, you know, depending on what it is, uh, they may decide sometimes within like five or six minutes, maybe 10 minutes at most, you know, whether it's you're having an issue with registration uh, or even if it's sort of, I can't remember my password, is there some sort of like key that I can use that can help me to get, uh, you know, get around this or to help me, you know, remember my password, things like that, trying to make a purchase uh, when, if you're using the Amazon app, when you have to slide in order to use your credit card, things like that, you know, that can be important. And if it's giving you an issue, if you're not getting a confirmation uh, number, if it's not providing you with a confirmation number, when you decide to uh, make a purchase, then, you know, the, the, the website becomes, uh, it's just not reliable. And from that point, it's just sort of like, okay, you know what, this is not working for me. And usually when people in, in this day and age right now, if something is not working for you digitally, there are alternatives. Yeah, that's, that's really, I mean, this might be, that might not be a whole other episode again, Stanley. I find that it's so interesting to kind of design where the psychology of like how you look at your phone or how you look at your computer and how you yeah. decide and how do you keep people engaged in, in all that stuff. I find that so interesting. But yeah. today, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, that could be another uh, that could be another conversation because you think about even when you take a look at at, at like the, the most recent Bond films or hell, even the Mission Impossible films, you take a look when there you've got the heads up displays on uh, on like the Aston Martin or, or that that BMW that, that Tom Cruise was driving, even though that's fiction, there are people working on that to make sure that that's realistic as possible. You know, mm -hmm. in terms of in terms of what you know what that person may have in terms of the information and where it should be placed in order for them to absorb that information, but while they're driving and while they're engaged in, you know, automotive combat, if we can put it like that. So, yeah, that's really mm -hmm. interesting stuff. So today's topic, we, we kind of brought it to you in, and you thought about um, wanting to do like kung fu and the kung fu history and how the action movies have progressed. So we started with. Um, just kind of your introduction or what's your familiarity or your, um, you'd say you're in the film industry with how Kung Fu started and the influence it's had on Hollywood since then. So the big thing in, in Kung Fu is or, or, or martial art films have been around and especially in, in China and Hong Kong and China for, for decades prior for them coming to uh, hitting with America. I think with America, it was like films like The Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra. Uh, and then also Spencer Tracy using a little bit of of um, of a uh, little like judo chops in uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, uh, but those were just sort of like instances where you know things were you know relatively simple. But I think once you get into the '60s and there was a bit more exposure, uh, you still had I think you had some flicks from like like Shaw Brothers were were putting some things out, but it really wasn't until Bruce Lee. Um, 
was the phenomenon that he was, you know, the 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 bright shining brief phenomenon that he was yeah. from a cinema standpoint. I mean, granted he was on the Green Hornet uh and had done some had done, had done some other work. But you figure Fist of Fury, Where the Dragon, uh like, you know, the big boss Chinese connection and then with a big budget uh with a big budget film like uh Enter the Dragon, you know, just before his death, uh the man was a phenomenon and I think at that point you have somebody who, you know, of, of Bruce Lee's stature, you're coming into the early 70s. And other films like, you take a look at Shaft, you take a look at, you know, even Shaft. figures like Bahamut. Yeah. <laughs> you, take you, can't a look at say, you can't just say Shaft. You have to say Shaft. Yeah. I, see, but the thing is, is that when you say that, then I got to go into Isaac Hayes, Hayes mode. Just like, can you dig it? You like, can you dig it? So, um, but, you know, the thing at that point is that you have this phenomena and, and it's the kind of phenomena. And we saw this, well, not we saw this, but I'm pretty sure, you know, like our parents saw it with Bond when those films released in the early 60s. You come out of these films energized. Uh, so you could imagine after people seeing Bruce Lee, you're coming out just sort of like swinging your, you know, swinging your arms and getting in the stances and things like that. And, you know, even with in like the early black exploitation films, you're you're walking out, you got your little strut going on and you want to just sort of like walk into traffic and, and dare somebody to hit you. But um, <laughs> at this point, it's just you've got everyone is just sort of like, oh, these these films are great. And of course, you've got like a slew of imitators and you've got people who are trying to capitalize. But from Hollywood's perspective, and this is usually what happens when there's a film that becomes a like a, a blockbuster and, and or something or there's a genre that just sort of becomes just open. Studios are like, well, wait a minute, what do we have or what can we use and how can we sort of capitalize? And I want to say, you know, from from what I was reading about uh, the man with the golden gun, how the fact that they changed a lot of it around and, and even had sort of a martial arts uh, element, at, you know, when when Bond is going to see high fat, you're just sort of like, OK, you know, yeah, we want to bring we want to bring some of that market into us. Um, and you saw it with and you saw it with the man with the golden gun. And, you know, it worked uh, on a certain level because, you know, here is, you know, here is Roger Moore slash Bond coming in and 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 actually it worked to his strengths because no he wasn't Connery in terms of physicality he wasn't Lazby in terms of physicality but nonetheless you know you're talking about economy of movement he can do he can do little bits and bobs maybe sneak on somebody but yet and still he can do it without you know without sort of like humiliating people who are like you know the Asian stuntmen or the other folks that may be in there and you're just sort of like, okay, this, you know, are they mocking us? No, he can just be convincing of James Bond pulling off a couple of judo moves and you mm -hmm. see him in the gi as well. And you go from there. I think the issue is though, is that, you know, the, the Bond films in the sixties were trendsetters in terms of, in terms of how they use music and especially in terms of, of, of editing and how that affected their sort of like action scenes. I mean, you know, with, with the, during the Connery era, it was just sort of it was visceral um, and you really got to see it wasn't just sort of like somebody throwing up a, a punch and you just see them sort of fall back and, and you take a look at stuff from the 1950s and it's like, OK, uh, but nonetheless, as time goes on and other, you know, other genres started catching up, you even take a look at it, a, a film like Bullet, where the car chase, you know, there is is a classic in itself and bit over time, it's just sort of, you know, the Bond series starts getting eclipsed a little bit 
you know, people may hate me when I when I say that, but it's just you take a look at, at some of those films. I want to say post Connery leaving and I would say even post on a Majesty's Secret Service and you're coming in with Roger Moore, who is not, you know, who admits that he's not Sean. It's just sort of like, well, how can we play this? How do we play the action up? How do we you know, how do we make this? You know, how do we make this interesting? So hence, you know, yeah, we'll 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 do something where we have a little bit of kung fu. But I think also people just look at that. It's just like, oh, you know, there's nothing innovative here on or there's nothing here that just that screams. Wow. It just says like, you know, James Bond is just doing this. And I also think coming off of um, coming up on the heels of live and let die where it's like they tap into. And I don't want to I hate calling it the black exploitation era because um on a certain level, yeah, it was, but you just had a, a different genre, you know, where you had African-Americans as a, you know, as a star and, and just, you know, having stories that may have revolved around them or, or, you know, things like that. But yet still it's like, yeah, the book centered around these elements and you've got this hitman and, and I mean, not this hitman, you've got this, you know, you've got this leader. Uh, you know, who's going, who's also has a double identity as being, you know, like this big sort of like drug lord. Uh, but again, going back to it, it's just like, oh, wait a minute. Now they're following Shaft. And then it's like, okay, now we're sort of like following Bruce Lee. And then from there, you're just sort of like, well, what, what, what is Bond trying to do? Is Bond trying, is this series trying to play catch up? Is it, you know, is it, you know, is it resorting to go into these routes in order to remain relevant? And from there, you have to take a look and just sort of like, okay, you know, maybe the franchise is sputtered a little bit. And you have other folks who are making their marks in terms of whether it's martial arts. In the films of the early 70s, then, you know, even you take a look at the French Connection, where they're coming in with, with car chases and action. Uh, and, you know, other films that are or may take the spy genre, but taking it in a different way, whether it's like the, I think the conversation with Gene Hackman, uh, I think Coppola did that. Um, and you also take a look at, you know, flicks like Marathon Man as well with Dustin Hoffman. And it's just they take the spy genre in a different uh, in a different direction. So where is, you know, where is Bond fitting in 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 all of this? Um, and, you know, the franchise was just in a, a little bit of a, um, you know, just where do we go from here and, and will they stay relevant? And of course, the spy who loved me, you know, in 77, uh, that sort of rejuvenated everything. And I really think they did everything that. They did. They went big, and they also played to um, to Roger Moore's uh, to his strengths in terms of how he relate his dialogue, uh, what kind of action. And if you notice, yeah, he had some stunts. He threw some punches and things like that. But there was never anything where, not that you didn't feel that he was in danger, but it was just sort of like, okay, you know, he's not going to go up against somebody who's, you know, three times bigger than him. Of course, Jaws, but that's played more for sort of like, you know, I wouldn't say comedy relief, but, you know, the sort of like intimidation factor is there. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's you know, how do you, you know, how is, how is, how is Roger Moore going to climb that mountain? Uh, but there's really nothing where there's a lot of um, physicality that's, that's required where he needs to sort of like, you know, pivot off of the side of buildings and, and start like, you know, tackling people or anything like that. You just don't see that with this, you know, with this series at this point, from this point forward. And one of the good things in, in what's missing, I think, from uh, the contemporary Bonds, especially the Daniel Craig era and even some of the Pierce Brosnan era, is that just like Connery, when it's time for the big fight or the big assault on the lair, he's part of a team. You know, it's just not one man doing it by himself. Yeah. 
you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, we need, you know, if we need ninjas, we need ninjas. <laughs> and, and Who doesn't we, want a couple ninjas? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, th- I think that that works there and you see it with more, you know, in, in The Spy Who Loved Me. He's got, you know, he's got those naval, he's got those seamen with him. He's got, you know, he's got those naval officers and it's like, look, let's storm the armory and, and you know, get to freedom. Um, but, you know, again, it's 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 how, you know, it's how the franchise responded and, and worked their way. Uh, in order to make things work for uh, for Roger Moore and for their audiences. And they found a new formula and just went with it. And things were going fine. But while they're doing that, you take a look at, you know, of course, after, you know, after Spy Who Loved Me, uh, Star Wars becomes popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ushers in a new era of filmmaking as well uh, in terms of special effects, in terms of the use of classical, you know, sort of like, you know, orchestra music, orchestral music, uh, and then, of course, you know, we get Moonraker. Um, I'm seeing on Twitter a lot of folks are coming out of the closet in terms of their love for Moonraker. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, that was that was the first Bond film that I ever saw in a theater. I think it was 10 at the time and, you know, just thoroughly enjoyed it. Didn't really know much about Bond at that point. I had some of my friends in school when Spy Who Loved Me came out. They talked about this car that could go into the water and become a submarine. But <laughs> at that point, I was more interested in X-Wings. Uh, but then, you know, with Moonraker, it's just totally just off the charts. It's just totally over the top. And when Eon decide to get grounded and they come back with For Your Eyes Only and, you know, they pare the action down, they pare a lot of things down and they just let go of a lot of the extravagance that we have been using and, and what was over the top. That same year, Raiders of the Lost Ark had been released. And so... You know, you have Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones, who, you know, not only in addition to being a college professor or a college doctor, is also sort of this, you know, adventurer, someone who relies solely on his resources, uh, uses very extremely resourceful and just sort of, you know, carries himself and carries on, you know, whatever it takes. And one of the things that you just have to see at this point is um, in subsequent films, especially Octopussy, uh, you know, again, they decide to, they don't decide to go bigger and let's have more gadgets and more and more things like that. It's like, okay, you know, how does Roger Moore get away from uh, being chased by a hunting party? You know, you, you, you see those parallels uh, and they still manage to keep them grounded while having sort of like that bond, that bond polish, which I thought was great. But also at the same time, um, you know, you've got Films by Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan started, you know, trying to break in and, and try to make things for the American audience. There was a film called The Protector. Uh, and then I, he was also in the Cannonball Run as well. Uh, you know, so you, that was his first foray into American cinema. Uh, and then you also had, uh, let's see, you had on syndicated television. If you, you know, you're in Baltimore. Um, and where did you grow up again? Uh, upstate New York. Okay, great. So I don't know where you upstate, but if you got Channel 5 uh, from down in New York, on Saturday afternoons at 3 o'clock, it was called Drive-In Theater. So it was nothing but kung fu flicks. It was like maybe like <laughs> two of them back to back. So flicks like Five Deadly Venoms, uh, The Flying Guillotine, uh, Kung Fu Conspiracy, all of these things were going on. And you're just, you know, if you didn't have somewhere else that you didn't want to go, and unless you were playing with your friends, you were sitting in front of that television, you know, because I think for young kids, unless you could get down to Times Square and going into those grindhouse cinemas, 
you know, this is where you're catching you know, like sort of like martial arts. So, again, you know, folks are coming outside after five o'clock after these films are, are, are over and they're just totally influenced by them. And then you also take a look at stars who are starting to make their mark. Schwarzenegger uh, with Conan. You take a look at, at Stallone with the first first blood. Him first moving. of all, mm -hmm. how are you not going to do an Arnold impression? I got to hear your what? Arnold impression. Because doing an Arnold impression is just hard. I mean, it's 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 um, for me, and especially when you take a, at the initial, at the first Conan film, to me, it's all about Dulce Doom, you know, where it's just sort of like it's yeah. you know what he's talking to them about the the, the power of uh, talking about the power of steel, and you know he just sees that woman up on the rock, and he's just like, come to me, my child, come, come, and and she just sort of and she just sort of walks. You're just sort of like get over here. He's just. <laughs> Sort of like, damn. He's like, that is power. And you, but yeah. you, I can't do Schwarzenegger's voice. I, you know what? Around Terminator, then you tried to. Where it's just sort of like the Uzi nine millimeter, uh, you know, a <laughs> plasma rifle with a forty watt range. You're, you're doing stuff like that, and you're just sort of like, okay, you know, I can get Schwarzenegger maybe in spurts, but but that's you know, but no, I I, I can't maintain, man. I'll, I'll probably strain something. Um, but and you know, but and then you know, sort of Stallone is a lot more easier to to or is is easier to imitate um, because it's you know it's the well and no it's not Stallone you're imitating it's Rocky you're imitating uh, yeah. because it's it's just sort of the old you know I can't see Mick you know cut me I gotta you know open my eye you know that kind of <laughs> that kind of slur but you know it's that but again you take a look at it it. You know Schwarzenegger doing um, Schwarzenegger doing Conan, uh, and then you take a look at, at Stallone moving from say like a film like Nighthawks, going from Rocky, Rocky to going into Nighthawks, and now doing First Blood, where he's you know really using he's using machine guns, and then when he moves to uh, to Rambo in in '85, you can see how sort of um, you know uh, this physical specimen, Schwarzenegger and Stallone how they're moving in and then you've got stars like you know burt reynolds and clint eastwood how in some ways when they were the top box office draw they're sort of like moving to the background a little bit uh where it's just you know there's more testosterone there's more um <laughs> there's more bullets the body counts are higher and yeah. you know, this is action for us you know this is this is action for us and once you get around to the mid 80s especially around 85 you have Again, Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Um, I think you, you even look at like the uh, you mm -hmm. look at like like the old WWF uh, guys. Like yeah. all, it's all cocaine and steroids and raw. You know, it's yeah. just uber and, accentuated, and that's the way the movie stars were too at the time. They were just so blown up and mm -hmm. gone away with the the suave, the Connery, the, the Clint. I used to love Clint Eastwood movies. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you could see you could see how the paradigm was changing and from. You know what masculine was was supposed to be. Then it got to the '80s. It got to be this uber cartoonish, yes. and then yes. it kind of ebb and flowed again. Mm, I mean, the, the the simple fact that you've got somebody like Schwarzenegger holding up uh, an M60 with one hand, uh, ammo wrapped around <laughs> his wrapped around his wrist, and let me tell you, Commando is still sort of a. It's always a guilty pleasure because you're just sort of like okay. Maybe you didn't realize as a teenager, but all the adults are just sort of like, oh, this is a joke, you know, where, I mean, with everything he's doing, jumping out of commercial planes, uh, taking on, you know, just being one person and taking on an island full of, of, of desperados in order to, serve, to save his child, 
you know, and, and everything that he's using and, 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 and stuff, you're just sort of like, okay. And then um, by the time Rambo First Blood Part Two comes out, I mean, Stallone is jacked. You know, yeah. he's he's just he's just huge. And again, you know, taking out taking out a helicopter mounted uh, M60 and just using it on folks in order to in order to bring home some POWs, and you're just sort of like, okay, wow, that's enough. And at the same time, Rogers got a swan song with a view to a kill. You know, it's 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 1985, and Look, for all that you could say about A View to a Kill, it's just you could tell where Roger was and when the stuntman comes in. And there was a definite disconnect there. And it's just something that 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 just didn't, you know, it just didn't work anymore. Um, and even when Dalton comes in in 87 and you're you know thankful that, yeah, the series is a bit more grounded. We're taking more from Ian Fleming and Dalton is doing more. Dalton is doing his own stunts. Um, that, you know, is refreshing, but at the same time, um, you're looking at folks like it's 1987. I think even is Van Damme on the scene yet. I think Bloodsport was 88. Um, but still you're looking at, it's just like, how does somebody compete in that space? And then on top of that, you've got Lethal Weapon coming out in 87. Uh, and you've got, you know, Mel Gibson, you know, still, you know, coming off of, of Mad Max. So you have another dynamic in terms of 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 what an action hero could be. But here he comes in in, in Lethal Weapon as somebody who's just emotionally broken. Um, so that adds an extra, you know, a dimension in terms of what an action uh, what a, a an action hero could be. Uh, yeah, you've got Predator in 87 as well, where, uh, you know, that that's an all time classic. And again, you've got Carl Weathers, you've got, you know, you've got Bill Duke, you've got Sonny Landham from, you know, from 48 Hours. Uh, you've got, and of course, you've got Arnold and, you know, it's just like, Jesse, yeah, who? Jesse yeah, Armstrong, sexual tyrannosaurus, and just, you know, so it's, <laughs> yeah, I, Look, if 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 you wanted to have anything that sort of summed up the '80s, uh, or at least in terms of an action cinema, you you put Predator on, um, because because honestly, I you just did not know how Schwarzenegger was going to get out of that. Um, I mean, there was genuine peril, and you just didn't know how somebody like him could compete. You know, could could compete with you know something from the other world that was just built for hunting. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you going to say something? No, I was just letting you know. Okay, thanks. So, you know, you have that. And then in 88, it's Bruce Willis and Die Hard. So, you know, you've got someone Christmas movie who, or not a Christmas movie? Christmas movie. Because sure. of because of when it takes place. Um, I have no problem with that. I think there are a lot of films that, you know, again, if they take place on Christmas, on or around Christmas, then that makes them Christmas movies. I think Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a Thanksgiving movie. You know, I think Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd is a Christmas movie because it takes place around Christmas. Um, I don't know whether you whether people think about whether Christmas movies should just be family movies. But nonetheless, if it takes place during Christmas, hell, uh, Ben Affleck in, in Reindeer Games, <laughs> you can Christmas. say that's a Christmas. That could be a Christmas movie. So, um, you know, that's how I, I look at it. But you take a look now. Uh, it's 88. And you've got, you know, you again, you've got Bruce Willis and Die Hard. And you want to talk about another thing that sort of um, another film that that creates a new genre in terms of action. And you've even got Steven Seagal, who, um, you know, soft spoken, 
and I'm not saying that he's not masculine, but he doesn't have that sort of 1980s sort of like body that we were used to in terms of the action space. But nonetheless, with his skills and how he sort of like is dis is is disarming people and just using his um, brand of Aikido or martial arts, how he's dispatching folks, you're just sort of like, okay, you know, uh, he's compelling in that space. And once we get around to 1989, when License to Kill is released, um, that summer it seemed like every week there was a blockbuster film being released from June through about August. I mean, Batman was a big film. Uh, but then you had uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I think there was there was Star Trek. I think James Cameron had released The Abyss. If I want to jump back, if we're looking at the 80s, you can't you cannot look at Aliens, uh, and you take a look at Sigourney Weaver as well, operating within this sort of uh, this uber masculine space. You know, she's got she's got the pulse rifle and the flamethrower. You know, taped together with duct tape. You know, just to go save you to go save this girl and fighting a, a queen with a power loader. Uh, you know, basically she's the last person standing as far as you know you going up against an extraterrestrial. And it's just again, you, this is just where we are, and this is what's being sort of like thrown at us in terms of action films. Um, so you know, while Bond has its space, and Dalton is 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 good for what he does. Living Daylights is probably one of my top tens. As far as um, as far as bond flicks go, uh, but yet and still, it's just where we are in terms of of action. You don't even know if you can even could you even classify um, could you even classify the Bond series as just being sort of like action films. Uh, for the most part, they've been sort of or the at least in the early days, they were thrillers or or espionage thrillers with a bit of action thrown in. Uh, obviously, as the stakes come up, the the action becomes a lot more the 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 action set pieces become a lot more extravagant and about a lot more involved. But yet and still, it's like you know, are these truly just wall to wall action films? And and the answer is no. Uh, and then once we get around to '89, you take a look and and there's you know you've got Batman, you've got you still got Indiana Jones going on. Um, we're two years away from from Terminator Two. And, you know, films, unless the, the game was raised, um, you can just see how, in the midst of all of this, how License to Kill underperformed. Um, you had... Oh, it got swallowed up in that time. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely. it's got swallowed. You, and you're even making a good point about the fact that you've got one end, you've got the uber-masculine guys who are Schwarzenegger, who, that's their auction, that's their space as playing the action stars. Then you've got the Seagals and the Jean-Claude Van Damme's who are martial arts and where mm. does Bond find his middle ground? Cause he's never, he's not going to be Schwarzenegger yoked up and he's not going to be Jean-Claude Van Damme. So he's trying to find his space in that time. And then you've also got your Batman who is in another level, more yes. martial arts and fantasy. So where mm. did he, where did, where did Bond find his niche? So he had a lot of compete with. So yeah, mm. you're making great points about all this stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a strange place. And I also think that, you know, with everything, with the whole thing with MGM and, and uh, uh, whatever was going on with how the, the, the Bond series was placed in limbo for five or six years. So you've got that uh, that level of inactivity. I think the fact that I enjoyed um, I enjoyed License to Kill and I enjoyed The Living Daylight so much that it brought me to start reading the John Gardner novels sort of like in, you know, during this hiatus. 
uh, we were still going. I was in college at the time. We were still going to the movies every week. But nonetheless, there was still this this sort of like bond need that I wanted to that I wanted to service. Um, you know, and again, uh, not just movies, man, but it was also just uh, comics as well. I mean, we were I was part of a group that was, you know, we'd still go out to the comic shop, you know, in the midst of like going to classes and and reading books. And, and at this point, you know, the you want to talk about who was jacked up uh, the Punisher. Uh, at that point when he was being drawn during that time, during the mid 80s, uh, his physique had increased. It was it was actually shocking when Dolph Lundgren played him uh, back in the 80s when they did that movie adaptation. He was big. But I mean, the way that they drew him in the comics, it was just you're talking about a plate of you're talking about a plate of iron with with um, with some arms. Uh, and he was just, you know, just massive and holding up guns and just dispatching people with 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 all sorts of with, with all sorts of, of, of you know, brut- brutality. Let's just put it that way, as much brutality that they can put in without getting in trouble with the comics code. Um, you take a look just quickly in the comic space uh, in the mid mid 80s. Batman had been uh, redone with Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, Superman had been redone with John Byrne's Man of Steel, which sort of grounded them. But yet these were still characters that you could, you know, that that were identifiable, but they just played by not necessarily a different set of rules. But in Superman's case, he was no longer moving entire planets around. They just made him more grounded. Um, And then you also have the Watchmen, which basically just broke down every um, all of, of, of they took the superhero archetypes and just sort of like, well, what exactly is this? Yeah, I mean, if you had Captain America, you take a look at Captain America on the surface, um, he's an asshole. And if you put him as part of America's foreign policy, look, given the wars that, you know, that we were quote unquote fighting at the time, it's just like, hey, yeah, he would do some foul stuff as well. Um, it's one thing to fight Hydra, but it's another thing when you're going up against sort of like the Viet Cong and on, under sort of like government yeah. orders. So you look at it that way, but I digress. Um, getting back to the nineties and there's no bond, you take a look at other people who are coming into the space and, and directors who are coming into, coming into their own. I mean, again, you know, Cameron with, with Terminator two, you take a look at Kathleen Bigelow and what she did with, um, the film near dark was good, uh, with, uh, I think Bill Paxton was in it. Uh, and who else? I think Robin Wright will have the cast of aliens was in it, but it was a vampire film and she really flipped it. And then she comes up with point break, which I think was 90 or 91. And that in terms of action, in terms of editing and in terms of dealing with not necessarily extreme sports, but you take a look at, at surfing culture. Uh, and then you, how that moves on to, you know, to these folks being thrill seekers and looking to, to rob banks in order to fund, you know, their adrenaline highs, then you have that. And it was really well put together. And then Blue Steel, which followed after that. And then you take a look overseas when Luc Besson comes out with La Femme Nikita, or it was just known as Nikita over in France, where you have a female assassin. Uh, and the way that that was shot, the cinematography, the music by Eric Seurat, um, I think one of the disappointments that everyone had with GoldenEye is that they wanted uh, the Eric Seurat who gave them a bit of La Femme Nikita and uh, a lot of the professional uh, as opposed to what they got when they saw uh, when you hear his music in, in, in GoldenEye. So, but nonetheless, Luc Besson just sort of like flipped it on its head uh, in terms of having, you know, this female assassin and then to flip it again where you've got this hitman and the professional uh, who basically 
sort of falls in love with a little girl, at least cares enough to 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 want to protect her when when his moral code just says that he should just stay uh, stay to himself. You have these films that are coming into the space, and we're still a couple of years from 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 Goldeneye being released. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you also take a look at what's coming out of Hong Kong. John Woo has decided to move, um, you know, decides to, to, he's had films and they really didn't do well. But in 86, he had this film called A Better Tomorrow uh, with sort of his, if John, if James Cameron had Michael Bean, then uh, John Woo had Chow Yun-Fat. Uh, who was sort of his like go-to person for all of his films? You had a better tomorrow, a better tomorrow part two. Uh, but the 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 thing about it was just sort of like this whole two guns being used, um, and just they call it gung fu. You know, once it got to the states, but that kind of uh, choreography, martial arts choreography, but with with handguns, uh, was just totally off the chain. I I remember the first time my friend, uh, my best friend, had given me, we need to watch the killer. And he pops a he pops a VHS tape in, and from the opening scene, you're just sort of like, whoa. Um, and then you keep moving forward, and 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 even Jackie Chan is like, look, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to be Bruce Lee. I'm going to start doing my own form of sort of like, you know, action, humor, and stunts. And he's got Project A. He's got Wheels on Meals, and 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 you can just see sort of the acrobatics and the spectacle. You know, as far as action is concerned, you can tell a story, you can get to point A, you can beat the bad guys, but there's a way in which you can do it that can be humorous uh, and that it can just make you marvel at what these people, you know, what everyone is doing. Uh, and then, hey, once uh, 92 comes around and he comes out with Police Story 3 Super Cop, um, that, was a, that took maybe about a couple of years to be officially released in the States. But you could just see, you know, what was so special about Michelle Yeoh back then. Um, and you just look and, and there's one scene that takes place, I think, in a, in a, in a restaurant and makes his way outdoors. There's a point where she finishes off a couple of guys and does a pose. And you're just sort of like, you know, that's like a star making turn. That's almost like Tom Cruise in his underwear in risky business. You're just sort of like, okay, she's right for it. Um, and you can just see where, uh, folks would, you know, casting folks would just sort of like, okay, you know what? We need to get her. Um, you know, so. So here, just flipping through and just moving forward a bit, you take a look at Pierce Brosnan. GoldenEye, you know, comes out in 95 and it rejuvenates the Bond franchise. It makes you, you know that there's still a market for it. And it becomes at that point, just sort of, you know, the, the, the highest grossing film of the, of the franchise at that point. Uh, and then you take a look at Tomorrow Never Dies uh, and where you can see a little bit of them sort of following let's try and like capitalize on what's going on over, you know, with this Hong Kong cinema. They get Michelle Yeoh, they get a few people of the stunt team, but one of the things that they also do that's a little bit uh, disconcerting, and it's not necessarily around Hong Kong cinema, is that Pierce Brosnan had said before that in order for, you know, Bond has to now compete with the diehards uh, and and the other films like that, you know, that are that are currently out this need for uh, sort of Bond dropping his PPK and really picking up a machine gun. And yep. as a matter of fact, I don't remember what film it is, but haphazard stuff. He does a montage of Pierce Brosnan uh, using a machine gun. And it's humorous, but it's it's telling about his tenure where it's, it's just sort of like the emphasis is really on, you know, let's, let's expend a lot of ammo. Uh, yep. And it's not just sort of, 
me just having, you know, a PPK and I'm going to make every shot count. Uh, you see it, and especially when they raid Carver's stealth boat, at one point, uh, Brosnan has got, he's got, a, he's got his uh, P-99. Uh, I think he's got like a, a, an H, a, a Heckler and Koch machine gun. I don't know what model it was. Uh, but he's firing both at the same time, you know, at, at bad guys. And then there's a point where he's got the walkie-talkie and he's going back and forth with Carver. And you're just sort of like, oh, okay, now this is a moment from Die Hard. You know, you're yeah. you're seeing all these elements. You're just sort of like, okay. Um, I even had some friends who were just sort of like they had been, they were really sort of impressed with you know with what Gold and I tried to do, but it seemed that on a certain level, while Tomorrow Never Dies was serviceable, it was just sort of like it was already it was treading on familiar ground, and yeah. the question is just sort of like where do we go from here because. Things are accelerating. I mean, John Woo has now come to America. You figure you've got Broken Arrow. You've got Hard Target with Van Damme. And and Face. And I think Face Off is still a couple of years away. You know, with that going on, just just what is, you know, what is what does Brosnan do? What does Eon do in terms of uh, what they do in, in terms of the action space? Because, again, you see more action set pieces as well. I think the director on the commentary for Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, Roger Spottiswood, he said that he was going to add more action scenes. And he's like, in retrospect, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> you still want yeah. to tell a story, and, but you just don't need that wall to wall. And, and don't get me wrong. I thought all most of the, the, the action set pieces in there were good. I thought the uh, the BMW in the car park was great. I thought that uh, the halo jump was 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 great because that's yeah. something that hadn't been seen uh, before. But it's just sort of like, okay, but now you were at the climax and we're in again, you've got you've got Pierce and Michelle Yeoh. they're basically it's 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 a two man army. Um, and while she's got skills, and I say at this point, for anybody who talks about, oh, you know, such and such, you know, is Bond's equal. I thought she was probably the one character who was, who was physically the most capable of mm -hmm. being quote unquote that equal in terms of in in terms of physicality, but not necessarily in terms of strength, but in terms of of, of ability when it comes to taking down people. You know, she was it. I think yeah. anybody else is just the, the the choreography was poor, and they just they just didn't have that action. They didn't have that action history, that action. Uh, that stunt training that that you know Michelle had you know for for years and years. So yeah, uh, I kind of think like the last three the last three Bond films kind of had a uh, a, a video game tie-in in the back of their mind as they write it. Um, right. You know they had become had gone from jumping and catching mushrooms to these first-person action shooter games where you literally just walk through, shoot everything up, and then mm -hmm. get to the end of your objective. And that's kind of how Brosnan's tenure kind of felt like as as it went on. It just felt more and more all right, this, what is this going to look like on the video game level? What is this going to look like <laughs> for a video game rather than he's still an action? We can make this video game that thing, but you can make the movie a really good movie, and then you can make your liberties on uh, with the video game to tie in. So I, I think that's yeah. kind of to the, the, the line that we're walking. Yeah. I just, you know, it's funny because I never, um, I had a PlayStation. I never got around to getting a, an N64, but I can... <gasps> Yeah, I know. I could, I could yes. see the, yeah, I could see the allure. I could really see the allure of, of, of you know, and it's funny because you would think about getting a system just solely for one game that would probably, you know, Goldeneye would probably be it, because I just see how how many how many people had had flocked to it, and and it's interesting that that could be sort of someone's entry into Bond, um, mm -hmm. and it was a perfect vehicle for it because I think from a video game standpoint. 
I don't think any of the the games that were for PlayStation, um, you know, from like the Brazen area era through the the Craig era, have really sort of like measured up. Um, and I think part of it is is part of it is storytelling, and then part of it is how do you bring that level of of interactivity uh, into into the story, if that makes yeah. sense. And you think about other games that was in the space, and we're digressing a little bit. Metal Gear Solid, um, you know, playing that for for the PlayStation in terms of the story, in terms of the the people that Snake had to you had to deal with. And the level of inact, uh, uh, interactivity that you had to deal with in order to for him to complete his missions, that was compelling as hell. Yeah, you know, it was. So it, it, and you just and you have to think it's just you know, if you're going to do something you know for in within the Bond space in terms of video games, you need to have something at least along those lines. You have to be that mm -hmm. kind of ambitious. So, but yeah, I mean that's you know that's that. And, and but getting back to filming where we were. Um, you take a look at Die Another Day and, and look, <clears throat> I simply say, uh, because I like Moonraker, there, there's a little bit, <laughs> I will give Die Another Day a little bit of a pass in terms of if you're an eight-year-old kid, if you're a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old yeah. and you see Die Another Day, then yeah, this is the perfect entry for you. Um, it's just, yeah, invisible cars. Uh, <laughs> <the> lasers, <laughs> you yeah. know, just lasers from space. Yeah, you have to uh, you have to be after you're 11 years old and you see this like this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And it's so weird. Even even like the innuendo dialogue, which is supposed to be for adults, like this isn't even this is how adults talk. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a rough one. And yeah. then we get into we do have as we go into Daniel Craig, and I think this is where we really start to see the action again. Which you which you talked about before. You just get into the Daniel Craig movie and you talk about from the the Bourne movies, and right. basically all that. But it still looks very much like a, an action kung fu movie at the same time, hand-to-hand mm -hmm. -hand combat, close things. But still, yeah. they're kind of piggybacking on it, but making it bond. Definitely, and I would think that you know, again, um, you take a look at the the parkour chase, um, <clears throat> and I would ask anyone who's seen Casino Royale, they need to see District B13. Uh, with uh, with David Bell and um, I forgot what the other gentleman's name is. Um, <clears throat> that I think was released sort of like a year later. But in terms of seeing parkour in that kind of in that kind of space from an action standpoint, it was you know again this is another thing where I think Casino Royale was Bond being on the cusp. You know this is where it's like he's taking something that that's that's around um, that not that many people have been exposed to. Uh, and then using it within the context of 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 showing you just how you know why Bond is how Bond is at this point in his life. Um, again, you got Sebastian uh, Foucan running and jumping and leaping and and wiggling out of situations, and Bond is just a, a you know His Majesty's terrier just doggedly chasing after him. Yeah. And yeah, just just you know just look, I'll go through walls. You know, I'll I'll jump, I'll I'll go into embassies in order to 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 get this guy, and I think it's great. But at the same time, you've got um, it's all character driven, and you take a look at what Matt Damon had done uh with uh with the firstborn identity, and I think you know I never read the books, uh, and I think there was one version where they had They're Richard. So Cooper. long, oh my god! Mm -hmm. I tried to read the books. They're a hard read for me to read because it's like, even the first thing the first part where he falls off the boat that's mm -hmm. like that's like hundreds of pages long before it, it 
It's it's a it's you gotta oh. earn those bucks. <laughs> okay. All right. No worries. All right. I'll I'll keep that in mind. I mean, you know, when I'm retired or or, or something, you know. Yeah, that's uh, a retirement book. There was a reason for the quick edits. It was emulating something. In Quantum of Solace, it didn't need to be there. You could have just let it breathe. But especially when they just had Casino, which they just nailed the action right out of the park. Yeah, but, I think so. You know, yeah, I, I, you know, I think there are only a few people who say that they thought that the, 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 the caveats or the, the weakest parts about Casino Royale is that maybe some of the action went on a bit too long. Uh, mm-hmm. But hey, you know, I think it still served the story as, as best as it could and, and in a perfect way in order to, for Bonds to, to, we get to see how Bonds character is developed and, and how he becomes who he is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, Quantum was Quantum. I think um, the success or lack of success, uh, I think it did well financially, but there were still a lot of people who were, who were very disappointed in the film uh, and especially sort of the overall production. Uh, by the time they get to Skyfall, you're just sort of like, okay, this is where they've got A-level talent uh, behind the camera. And it's not, you know, it's not a dig at Mark Forster. It's not a dig at Martin Campbell, but... You know, you figure Sam Mendes has given us Road to Perdition. He had given us uh, American Beauty. I mean, these films that were sort of like lush and really take their time telling a story. And they really made it work. I think with, with you know, with the second unit action team uh, and then also with Roger Deakins, uh, you know, who is a cinematographer who's worked with the Coen brothers extensively, the use of color. The, the, the sets that they had set up. And I think Sam Mendes comes from the theater. So in terms of when Bond fights Patrice uh, in Shanghai and you see, you know, you've got the, you've got the um, advertisements in the back and you've got all the glass and all the different colored images going mm. on. That's just stunning. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just, it's not just stunning, but just damn memorable. You know, you can't, and after all of that action is done and, and Patrice falls to his death, you take a look and Severine is just looking in the next door and like looking in the next building and you're just sort of like, damn, that's a moment. You know, yeah. that's a moment. Um, and going, and not only the fact that that you take a look at that action scene, uh, Bond and Patrice are, are, are in silhouette. So it's only the muzzle flashes that help you to define just sort of like who is who. So, you know, this is another layer, a layer of just thinking about how can we make the action uh, just really, really memorable. So you think about we move from that. Uh, we get to see Bond's doggedness again, where he's got to run to save M, you know, going from uh, going in the London tube station. Uh, are you still there? Yeah, I, I got a phone call. That's fine. Go ahead. Okay. I just got... Do you, do you need to take it? No, I, I got to be somewhere in just a couple minutes, but we'll uh, okay. keep going. Do your thing. So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll wind things down. But again, uh, you will, you know, this was this was something that was just memorable and just the the overall looks in this film. Uh, when you know when when uh, what's his name Silva comes to uh come to Skyfall and 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 basically Bond is is left defending the castle. Uh, yeah. just all of those looks were just great. I mean, the way that you know, sort of like the the bullets or the the shotgun uh, uh the shotgun uh not shells but the buckshot how they would just go through walls and you have the bits of light coming through all of that was just you know was just was great um you know so all of that was just memorable from a visual standpoint um 
but we fast forward and you've got Sam Mendes again uh, when it's for for Spectre. And hey, I just hold on one second. Let me just text real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead, keep going. Keep talking. Yeah. I'm just gonna text this guy real quick. All right, no Go worries. Ahead. Yeah, so we're um, so yeah, you're here for Spectre, and something just seems to be missing. Uh, I just think that you know, outside of uh, the 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 Day of the Dead pre-title sequence, which I thought was good. Um, I think there was an innovative way to start up a, a sequence. Uh, and then also the, the the fight scene with with Dave Batista in um, you know on the train. I, I yeah, I swear they need to bring De- Batista back for no time to yeah. die. I, I think if there's anything that if there's one person who needs to come back from that film, it needs to be him uh, because that he was a force and he is a force of nature. Uh, but there was just something lacking there. I just think that that you know the the plane sequence was just eh. Um, I thought that the, you know, fight in Blofeld's lair, I mean, this is where, you know, Felix comes, should be coming to the rescue with a whole bunch of, you know, which a whole bunch of, of military folks. Um, but no, it's just Bond going on sort of like a five person kill streak, you know, yeah. and, and it's just, it's like, okay, where, where can you get your energy boost and, and, and just, you know, keep moving with the girl. So, you know, and you juxtapose that with what Tom Cruise was doing and how he, and ha- with the Mission Impossible series, you know, especially after with uh, with Go- with Ghost Protocol, uh, where he's literally putting his body out like, you know, on the line in order to, for, to, to, to elevate the action so that you know that it's him and that you know that the, that, that the stakes are really high. Um, you know, it's, it's just it, it just made Spectre feel a bit flat uh, yeah. and just made it, just feel it a, a bit lacking. And I know that they never put Daniel Craig in that situation, but still, you're just sort of like, okay, we need to we need to raise our game a bit. Um, so, you know, I mean, this brings us to to where we are. Um, we're waiting for no time to die. I think with what we've seen from the trailer, I think they're going to be some. There will be some solid pieces. I think the key thing, and I hope this is with with Carrie Fukunaga and, and the filmmakers, if they just make Bond Bond, and they don't succumb to any trends. If they don't succumb to like you know a lot of things from the outside in order to make into to make it relevant, you know no speed ramping, no you know hyper like hyperactive editing. Just I think we'll be okay. I think yeah, we'll be okay. Absolutely. I, I think, think we'll that okay. you. I think yeah. I, I think so too. I think the movie looks amazing. I think you bring a you did an amazing job of just kind of looking at how the progression of action films happened from seventies and on to before. And I think it's important. I think for going forward is that you can take things that you like of it, but don't mm-hmm. be a complete emulation of it. Like we talk about Kung Fu and, and the man with the golden gun. Take a little bit of it, and you can see even in, when we talk about Patrice, Patrice and uh, Bond fighting in the thing. It's parry, it's punch, it's hand-to-hand, it's, it's basically Kung Fu, but it's mm-hmm. in a thing, it's influence, it has one part, but the rest of the movie still feels like Bond. You talk mm-hmm. about, the uh, again, the, the black exploitation again, it kind of felt like that movie was a complete ripoff, or Tomorrow Never Dies, or all these things. When you take a Casino Royale, it has a parkour part, but mm-hmm. the whole movie is emulated on that thing. Take some right. bit part, enjoy it, enjoy one of the things that you can learn from other things. But if if Quantum of Solace would have taken just that one fight in Haiti, maybe, mm-hmm. and just kind of down, but not had the car chase so much, or not have the rest of the things so much as the editing and chop cutting. If you're influenced a little bit more, rather than taking a whole rip off, I think that Bond has to stay Bond, just like you're saying. Bond stay yeah. Bond. You can take pieces of of what happens and happening now, but don't rip it off. Exactly what you're saying, and I think that No Time to Die is going to be 
a Bond film and hopefully influenced by some other things. I um, think so. And I think uh, hopefully but, be able to influence others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be, be, be the mark. Be the gold standard again, right? Exactly. So I got to do this every time. Every time. All mm-hmm. right. You got a chance. Any, any Bond girl from the entire Bond series, right? Mm-hmm. You, 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 get to, you get to get in the gi, and you get to go kung fu fight for a little bit. But afterwards, the gi's come off. All right, but okay. you have to kung fu fight, but you get the gi after. Who are you going to kung fu fight with? All right. Wow. It's a it's a tie because I would say, um, damn, actually, it's a three-way tie. Uh, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I just Hopefully. hate that. It's a hey, look, I, I'm living vicariously through some of you young guys, man. And I would say <laughs> you give me Honor Blackman. Uh, yeah, you give me Honor Blackman. I just there's something about women from the 60s that are just so sexy. I think yeah. there was, a, you know, and, and, and it's. Yeah, I just think you, you can see the curves, you can see the sophistication, um, you know, in, and you're just sort of like, oh, really? You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and you know what, yeah, and, and you can you can see them in public now, and, and some of them are in their 70s or what have you, but they've still got that little something where they just sort of like look over and you're just sort of like, oh, really? You know, you, you kind of want to, <laughs> you kind you. of go in your shades a little you. bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see you. Um, you know, the, the thirst trap is real. Uh, but I would say, I would say Honor Blackman. Um, I would also say Gloria Hendry. I swear, I have not seen a pair of hips in a bikini like that. And this is, yeah, this is the seventies. You're just sort of like, it's just low. And you're just sort of like, <laughs> you know, I'm damn. Um, so, and then after that, once we get around to, well, look, I'll, and we can add Talisa Soto to the mix from License to Kill. I mean, she's Puerto Rican, she's from New York, so that's just, to me, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just some local stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that's it. Um, Great choices. Any, oh, um, Falcon Janssen. Uh, I think that just, again, there was a level of sophistication there, the physicality and the sophistication there. You're just sort of like, okay, yeah, definitely. If she doesn't kill me, or even if she does kill me, it's a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just it's what a way to go. It's what Absolutely. a way to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Stanley, thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. You you just you just knocked it out of the park today. Thank you so much for coming on. Can't yeah, thank you enough for having me. Oh, what a pleasure, man. Thank you so much, Stanley. Mm-hmm. Again, if you're not following him on Instagram, Stanley Tatum, uh, really great follow. And thank you so much for coming out today, buddy. Hey man, thank you. And I'll, I'll to, to anybody who decides to follow me, just give me some time, and I'll start posting more stuff because I'm just I'm I'm living I'm living the dad life right now. So, <laughs> so I think once we once I get some time in the holidays, I'll I'll get the camera and I'll start taking some pictures. All right. Awesome. All right, my man. Thank you so all much. Right. Thank you so much, Don. I'll talk to you later. All right, thank you so much, Stanley, for coming on. There's really not much else I can say that uh, Stanley didn't cover. He was so thorough, so great. And thank you for suggesting this topic. Thank you for coming in and, and doing such a marvelous job with it. Um, so I'm definitely going to have to have some future episodes with Stanley. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 23. This has been Kung Fu. 
All right, guys. Thank you so much. Episode two or part two of the China Influence series will be coming out. Be featuring Thomas Felix Crate, and we're going to talk about、um, China and its overall influence in Hollywood today. So, really good episode, as always. Thank you so much. If you haven't followed me, liked me, subscribed to me, give me a review, please do. I appreciate it. If not, I totally get it, but it would be really nice if you did. All right, guys. Thank you so much. As always, stay positive out there and take care.